Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Mark Pimentel in the MAST, the Medically Associated Science and Technology Program at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Today, we'll discuss his recent ACG clinical guideline, Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth, which was just published online in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in January 2020. Dr. Pimentel, welcome. Let's begin today's podcast by setting the stage for our listeners. Why an ACG clinical guideline on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? There's a lot of reasons to have a guideline, and thank you for allowing me to participate in this podcast first off. Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth continues to grow as a concept. While the concept is not new, of course, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth was first framed in the 1960s. The evolution of technology, sequencing, New capsule technologies are emerging in this field, but moreover, clinical associations between bacterial overgrowth and conditions like irritable bowel syndrome and others are really challenging our science, and and we need to rise to the occasion and be prepared. And I think the guideline is meant to do a number of things. It's meant to set the standards for what clinical research should look like in this area and sort of lay the foundation of where we are currently so that we can improve upon things as we move forward and try to answer questions that remain unanswered. The guideline highlights a new definition for SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is both subjective and objective components. Can you review this for us, please? So it's important to not just rely on the breath because the breath test has limitations. The breath test is an indirect measure of bacterial overgrowth. So, for example, if you have a patient who does the breath test but has no symptoms whatsoever and a certain proportion of healthy individuals can be positive on the breath test and you can call that false positive. So it really requires both having symptoms and having uh, a positive breath test. But the new de- other new definitions that have been put forth, and we'll discuss some of these later, are the culture definitions as well as what we consider the standard definition of a positive breath test. And this is really important because the literature is riddled with different criteria for positive, double peaks, single peaks of 10 or higher, the glucose breath test. Some studies say 10 or higher is fine, whereas lactulose, 20 parts per million or higher. And it muddies the water, and so we need to be clear on what our definition is today and perhaps compare to this definition and improve upon those definitions as time goes on. But to sort of answer your question, the reason we think it's important to put the two together also is as we prepare for future double-blind randomized control trials for SIBO, having a definition that requires both an objective and a subjective endpoint is very important. Mark, that's a great summary, and it can be confusing, and we'll tackle some of these questions individually as we go through this podcast. And one of those questions involves kind of in the past, clinicians and researchers have used a cutoff of 10 to the fifth colony forming unit as a cutoff for a positive test. But the new definition that you've outlined for us uh, includes 10 to the third colony forming units. Why the change? There's a number of reasons. First of all, 10 to the 5th was a cutoff that was defined in the 1960s based on culture of coliforms in the small intestine, but all of those studies were done in cases of blind loop syndrome or altered or what I would call iatrogenic small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. 
those patients had malabsorption, B12 deficiency, because their rearrangements of the bowel were so profound that you don't know if it was the SIBO causing the malabsorption or whether it was the actual anatomic change that was made as a result of surgery. What we've since learned is if you look at the summation of literature of culture of the duodenum in healthy individuals, Almost no healthy individual is greater than 10 to the 3. Medicine should define normal as the healthy individual and abnormal as greater than two standard deviations above healthy. And so that exercise of looking at the literature from a healthy standpoint suggests that 10 to the 3 was important or a better cutoff. However, since then, studies have examined 10 to the 3 more objectively. There are a number of studies. One is a uh, deep sequencing trial that was done, and we were part of that trial, and we showed that 10 to the 3 was the best or ideal cutoff correlating with symptoms with sequencing and with breath test, and so 10 to the 3 appeared to be the ideal cutoff. And finally, an article that didn't make it into this guideline as a citation, but just came out in the American Journal of Gastroenterology uh, last week, and that's a meta-analysis of all the culture studies, and 10 to the 3 appeared to be the most discriminating for SIBO even in that. So I think not only did the evidence support 10 to the 3, the evidence ongoing is continuing to support that 10 to the 3 is the better cutoff. But I'll add one more sort of caveat to that. As we move forward, sequencing will have a different cutoff and various other techniques may have other cutoffs that we'll have to evaluate as time goes on as well. Great explanation. It kind of just shows how science keeps evolving and how we need to keep up to date with these guidelines. Mark, there are a lot of controversies about breath tests. Can we cover three of the top controversies one by one, please? The first being, which is the preferred substrate for breath tests, lactulose or glucose? First of all, breath testing is criticized because it's an indirect measure, and a lot of factors play into the role of how a breath test can perform. For example, if there's rapid transit in a given individual, the sugar can progress down the bowel, especially lactulose, which is not absorbed, and arrive at the colon, leading to early peaks in hydrogen production, and some suggest that that's why lactulose has some faults. In general, though, and this is supported by the literature, glucose breath testing is more specific because glucose is absorbed within the first three feet of small bowel. So it would be unusual for glucose to be positive or get to the colon and produce a false positive. On the other hand, lactulose has the problems of traversing all the way to the colon. But the challenge we have is that glucose actually undercalls overgrowth. So let me paint an example of why I think and the literature supports lactulose as being preferred is because it's not just about who's positive and who's negative when it comes to overgrowth. It's about who will benefit from treatment and does the breath test optimize the patients who would benefit. So if you look at glucose, for example, approximately 25 to 30% of patients who are presumed to have SIBO are positive on glucose. On lactulose, it can be upwards of 60% in the same population. Now, in the study with rifaximin and IBS, almost 56% of patients responded to rifaximin if lactulose was positive. So 56% is much higher than 25 to 30%. In other words, what I'm saying is if you had done glucose breath tests in the rifaximin trial, you would have eliminated almost 25 to 30 patients per 100 who could have benefited from lactulose if you had used the other substrate. So you've basically, by doing glucose, you may have denied 
a percentage of patients the opportunity to benefit from an antibiotic with a fairly good safety profile. I know that's a long answer, but it's sort of a mathematical way of looking at the two sides of which, you know, carbohydrate would be best. No, it's a great explanation. It really puts things in perspective. Okay, let's go on to even something that may be more controversial. When we measure excreted gases on the breath test, should we be focusing on hydrogen or methane or a combination of the two? The irony of breath testing is that some of the earlier instruments were measuring hydrogen only and then subsequently hydrogen and methane, and yet methane was being measured, but no one was really paying attention to the methane. I think what we know now, and again, this most recent meta-analysis from last week supports this, that methane is associated with constipation, and, and studies in physiology suggest that methane itself is, has a direct effect in impacting colonic transit and small bowel transit. So hydrogen breath test really is for testing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, but methane is a little bit of a challenge because even though methane is associated with constipation, methanogens are not bacteria. So in this guideline, which I think is a real step forward, is we stop calling the methane positive as SIBO because methanogens are not bacteria, they're archaea. So we now coin the phrase intestinal methanogen overgrowth if methane is associated with the constipation. But Two other points to that is that methane can predict response to antibiotics in that single antibiotics are not effective with methane and that you need two antibiotic or antibiotic combinations. But if you can make the methane normal, constipation can resolve and there is at least one double-blind study that supports that notion. So it's important to measure both in the end. In the guidelines, you mentioned that cutoff levels have changed for the levels of breath hydrogen and breath methane. What levels do you recommend for making the diagnosis of SIBO or, as you mentioned, intestinal methane overgrowth? So this brings me to some of the sort of entertaining parts of bacterial overgrowth. That is, for example, there used to be a notion that you had to have two peaks. In essence, you had to have a rise of hydrogen, a drop in hydrogen, and then a rise of hydrogen again, like two camel's humps, and then that was bacterial overgrowth. That never made sense because there isn't a location in the gut where there's a gap where hydrogen would drop. It's generally a continuous climbing level of organisms and then a precipitous climb or a very accelerated climb in the colon. And so why would you have a dip somewhere? It never made sense to me. And I think the literature has panned out on that. So one of the myths that had to be sort of debunked or proven that that's never been validated is the two-peak notion. But the second part is, again, as I mentioned earlier, the literature is filled with varied criteria of what is positive and 10 parts per million rise, 20 parts per million rise. The a North American consensus two years ago decided that 20 parts per million was the cutoff at 90 minutes. So in other words, if you did a breath test and by 90 minutes, the hydrogen delta or change was more than 20 parts per million, that was considered positive. A presentation at DDW, part of this reimagined study looking at sequencing of the bowel, confirmed that the greatest correlation with sequencing and culture in the bowel was also this 20 part per million cutoff, and that it looked at a number of different cutoffs, and 20 part per million produced the best sensitivity and specificity. So I think we're settling on 20 parts per million by 90 minutes, irrespective of substrate, whether it's glucose or lactulose for hydrogen. Thinking about endoscopy and the attempt to diagnose 
placebo by some providers, they oftentimes culture the duodenum during routine upper endoscopy. Is this a good practice? Is it reliable? What about concerns over cross-contamination from the oropharynx? So, as I keep mentioning over and over, we're, we're in the middle of doing a study called the Reimagine study, and the Reimagine study is designed prospective patients coming for upper endoscopy here at Cedars. We aspirate the duodenum, and then we get, of course, biometrics on all the patient's blood and so forth. But the one thing we learned very quickly was you have to use a protected catheter, and there are very few on the market that would serve this purpose. And then a cap on the tip to prevent oral contamination as you pass the catheter through the scope. The second thing is that the mucus itself is very dense, and one of the more recent publications that we have is validating how to actually culture the small bowel, because if you dissolve the mucus with a mucolytic, you get a tremendous amount more coliforms, and you're able to have better granularity about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So protected catheters, the proper handling of the material, and proper culture techniques are critical to get the best result. And those results with the mucolytic correlate better with breath testing, better with symptoms as well in the patients. So it's not as simple as what people are currently doing. And so there's more literature evolving to try and perfect that technique because that too is not fully vetted. We've mentioned a couple of times symptoms and we've kind of danced around it and we discussed the need to have both objective and subjective criteria. What are the most common symptoms associated with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? Is there one that always has to be present to confidently make the diagnosis? I think the basic premise of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is excessive organisms in the gut. And excessive bacterial organisms in the gut would mean excessive fermentation, which of course means bloating and distension and symptoms related to that. I think bloating is the definitive symptom of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and it's associated with either diarrhea or constipation in the case of methanogens, and then abdominal pain related to the bloating and distension. And so in some ways, it's similar to a lot of the symptoms of functional bacteria bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome, but bloating really is the predominant symptom, and I think that's what we need to focus on with SIBO. In your guideline, you mentioned a very interesting study from Jacobs and colleagues involving patients who underwent antroduodenal manometry who also had small bowel cultures. This study assessed symptoms, but could you help our listeners interpret this study? In this article, the reason it's in the paper is that it highlights a couple of factors. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, it's important to have an objective finding in addition to the symptomatic finding. But what's important to understand in SIBO is that, and I point this out at the beginning of the guideline, and what it says is that you have to understand that SIBO can be part of other illnesses. And I use the two examples. I use the patient with chronic pancreatitis. Chronic pancreatitis is associated with SIBO and can produce bloating, gas, and distension from malabsorption. So sometimes it's challenging to take a patient who's symptomatic and determine whether it's SIBO causing the symptoms or the underlying disease causing the symptoms or both. Crohn's disease is another example where if you remove the ileocecal valve, you treat them with the anti-TNF medication, but they still have ongoing symptoms. So is the Crohn's still flaring and should the Crohn's medications be titrated or could it be that they have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and that's what's giving the ongoing symptoms so don't in increase the Crohn's medications, but rather treat the SIBO. And I think that, again, highlights the importance of having the objective plus the subjective to rule in SIBO. 
focusing a little bit too on symptoms and how some of these symptoms such as bloating are nonspecific, you mentioned a couple of diagnoses where patients are maybe more likely to have SIBO, chronic pancreatitis and Crohn's, as you mentioned. Should we focus our efforts on testing specific groups of patients for possible SIBO? Is there a group of diagnoses where SIBO is much more likely to occur? I think what we're starting to see, for example, and this is a bit of a conundrum that phys- clinicians get into. So you could compare this, in a sense, to H. pylori, where you have peptic ulcer disease. Peptic ulcer disease is an umbrella diagnosis, and yet about 70% only of peptic ulcer patients have H. pylori, and the H. pylori is presumed to be the cause of ulcers in that group. But there's 30% who have other causes of ulcers. Looking outside of peptic ulcer disease, there's also a lot of people with H. pylori who don't have peptic ulcer disease. And I think the same thing is here in functional GI disorders, particularly irritable bowel syndrome, and the meta-analysis from last week showed this, IBS, a certain proportion, SIBO may be a culprit in their symptoms. But SIBO can occur for a lot of reasons. Anything that causes stasis in the bowel, whether it's adhesions, whether it's malabsorption, cirrhotic, patients can get bacterial overgrowth probably because of changes in bile acids and other protective mechanisms for bacterial buildup, Crohn's disease, ileocecal resection. So there's there's multiple etiologies. But the reason it's important to know the etiology, if you can determine it, is because it will help prevent the need for repeated courses of antibiotics. Because the goal here is to treat the patient, see the resolution, and if possible, correct the underlying reason for the overgrowth. Another big example is opiates. Morphine is well known to inhibit muscular function of the gut and precipitate overgrowth. These are studies from the 1990s, and we know there's an opioid epidemic. So another example of where if you can focus on the primary cause of the SIBO, the patient will benefit in the long run. Many clinicians look for evidence of vitamin deficiencies in patients with SIBO, and you briefly mentioned some vitamin issues in the past. Should we always check vitamin B12 and folate levels in every patient being evaluated for SIBO? Do we need to measure other vitamin levels as well? I mean, I've been seeing SIBO patients for 20 years, and I can count on one hand the number of low B12s I've seen in those individuals. So it really begs the question about whether B12 deficiency is truly associated with SIBO or not, or whether it was, as I mentioned earlier, due to the structural changes from the surgery that they had that caused SIBO. But folate is different. So it's interesting, in the veterinary world, when they're trying to look for bacterial overgrowth in dogs, they measure a folate level, and if the folate is high, they suspect SIBO. Bacteria produce folate, and that's where we get our folate from. And so a high folate I see very often and often associated with SIBO. But all of that being said, there's no systematic study that's looked at B12 and folate in a prospective way. So I can say all I want, but we really don't have a real good scientific answer to the question. You've done some really interesting work and and made significant contributions to the field, talking about methane-producing species, not bacteria, but species, and elevated levels of methane and how they may be associated with constipation symptoms in some patients. Let's turn the question around and think in patients with constipation, should we be performing breath tests in all those patients to identify methane-producing species? So this is an area of great interest to me because 
One of the things about the microbiome is the microbiome is extraordinarily complex. There's, you know, if you look at 10 different studies, for example, in irritable bowel syndrome, you'll get 10 different. All of them will show differences in the stool microbiome between IBS and healthies, but each study will have a different group of organisms or species. But there's only one or two organisms in the gut that produce methane. So that really simplifies it and is an opportunity for treatment because now we can we have a single organism and a single association. But in studies where you look at constipated patients, nearly 80% are methane positive. So, and if you get rid of the methane, the constipation goes away, or at least it, it improves dramatically, and you don't get diarrhea. So it's an opportunity for new drug development, for new ways of treating constipation, perhaps by treating the cause or mechanism if these organisms are the cause. So I think there's a lot of optimism in the microbiome world for methanogens, treating methanogens, and improving constipation. I'm very optimistic in that area. Wonderful. And then a perfect follow-up question is, since you talked about treatment, let's consider treatment for a second. Many patients and many healthcare providers routinely recommend the use of probiotics for the treatment of SIBO. What does the guideline say about the use of probiotics for the treatment of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? So this is a mixed sort of result because there is some data that probiotics can improve motility. There is data that probiotics can improve gut cytokine responses. So, and that probiotics may be able to outperform over crowd out other bacteria or just simply even act as antibiotics to other organisms. But in terms of SIBO, it's a mixed bag. There is no definitive study that proves that probiotics will get rid of SIBO. The ultimate is fecal transplant. And this is an interesting area because there's a couple of really good anecdotes, but one in particular I'll mention today is that there's a case that was published where the patient received a transplant for C. diff and ended up having severe constipation, in other words, going to the bathroom and having about once a week. And it turns out that the donor was methane positive. And since that publication, donor banks have been screening for methane because we now know that you can transplant methanogens. So the jury's out on probiotics and fecal transplant and SIBO, and in some cases it may be harmful or cause trouble. I think that's a great example, and that's a fascinating case report, and it's a reminder about some of the downsides of fecal transplants. Mark, focusing on treatment again, antibiotics remain the mainstay of treatment for SIBO. What does the guideline say about a preferred agent? Do we have data from head-to-head comparisons to guide treatment regimens? Part of a guideline is a challenge because guidelines aren't meant to be the be-all, end-all. They're meant to highlight the strengths of the data, but more importantly, to highlight the weaknesses of a particular topic and where there's opportunities. And I think there is data. For example, there's a lot of data on rifaximin, a couple of trials on norfloxacin showing success, and other antibiotics as well, augmentin or epicillin clavulinate, I should say. But what we need are some true FDA trials and hopefully some FDA-approved drugs for SIBO itself. And the only way to get there are to have guidelines, are to have strict definitions for what SIBO is and to have that starting point. And I think guidelines are important to get us going. So the future is a better trials, head-to-head trials, and exactly what your question speaks to. Because we wind down on this wonderful podcast. One last question. For patients identified as having SIBO and then treated, should we routinely retest all patients with a breath test to confirm resolution of SIBO? The way I handle it in my clinic, again, it is based on the evidence because there is good evidence in this, but the way I handle it in my clinic is as follows. If a patient has SIBO and and they have a breath test that's positive and I proceed with an antibiotic 
and they come back and they feel 90% resolved in their symptoms, no breath test will tell me that I should do anything more. So I think for the sake of cost-effective medicine, that it's not necessary to do a breath test in a patient where symptoms have resolved. In the case where the symptoms have only partially resolved or you're concerned that there's an incomplete eradication, that would be the patient I would consider retreating. The patient I really test is the methane because I know that if I can get the methane below 10 parts per million, which is the cutoff for methane, that that's the patient that's going to have the best outcome in that category of breath testing. So that's how I do it in my clinic based on the evidence. Mark, this truly has been a really educational discussion, so thank you very much. Any last thoughts for our listeners? No, I really appreciate the opportunity to present this guideline. I know this is the first guideline in bacterial overgrowth, and so we'll raise a lot of uh, interesting questions, but I hope we'll start answering a lot of these questions over the coming years. Okay. Well, once again, Mark, thank you. Your expertise in the field and your education is really just critically important for our listeners. And for those of you who have not yet read the article, it's now available online, and this is a great review article on SIBO. So, Mark, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian.